Welcome back to Clinicians Brief, the podcast, the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser, and we are still hanging out at New York Vet this week. We're having such a fun time. There's some amazing topics, great speakers, a really fun group of people congregated here to get some higher learning and to do better medicine throughout the rest of the year. This is my favorite time of year when we get into these conference seasons and we start to get all of this learning and inspiration going. And speaking of inspiration, I get to sit down today and spend some time talking to Dr. Simon Platt about mastering vestibular diseases in dogs and cats. All you need to know. The whole lecture is all you need to know and we're bringing it to you here. Dr. Platt, thanks so much for being here. Thanks very much for inviting me. I am ready to tell you all you need to know. And and I need to know all I need to know, so I wanna dive into it. But before we do, will you tell me just a little bit about yourself, where are you working, how'd you get here? Yeah, currently I'm a professor at the vet school, University of Georgia. I've been there for about 13 years. And prior to that, I worked in England at a specialty referral center. And I did a residency, University of Florida, internship in Canada at the uh, University of uh, Guelph. And I did some time in private practice in London and graduated from University of Edinburgh. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay, so tell me this. Were you always the, the person who always wanted to be a vet? Did that come along later in life? How'd that work for you? Yes, actually, yes. I had a bad experience with my own dog when I was about eight. Yeah. It was a Dalmatian, had bladder stones, had surgery, didn't go well, and I was really upset. We lost the dog. And so I said, I'm going to do much better than that vet did, which was pretty bold at eight. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know. So why, why have I lost my dog? I need to do a better job than that. You know, I was kind of devastated, and I, but then I got really into the whole reasons why dogs get sick and for some reason then just followed the path non-stop into veterinary medicine. That's actually amazing and I think that's a beautiful honor to your dog to be honest to say that I had this experience and I maybe that veterinarian surely didn't do anything wrong I hope. Oh no, no. <laughs> he probably no, now, I, now I look and feel sorry because I think <laughs> I've been there a million times. Sure, but you know I bet if he knew he'd say it's not a problem because I inspired somebody else to become a veterinarian and now yeah. you're saving lives every day. Absolutely. And now you're teaching people to save lives which I think is fantastic and that's what you're here doing talking about vestibular disease. And you talk about vestibular disorder, I was excited to see this in the lineup because I think as everyone knows, it's a very common presentation in the clinic, GP and ER, and it's truly one of these incredibly distressing conditions for clients to see or experience for their pets, I feel like. And, you know, often, you know, fearing that their pet has had a stroke when they see these clinical signs. And and for staff, you can't help but feel bad for these pups that are, you know, clearly on a full-time tilt-a-whirl, right? Yeah, and this is the problem that they can suddenly be completely disoriented. They can feel sick with this. And the owners are often extremely anxious because the signs are so dramatic. And so we have to try to break down the problem for them into exactly what is going on and what could be causing it. And we can do a few hands-on tests to get to the bottom of the problem. And that's really what the talk is about, trying to find out whether the disease is in the brain or whether the disease is in the ear, two completely different areas that could cause the same signs. Or neither. Or neither, yes. (laughs) And we've got to get to that, right? Which is kind of part of what I think makes it very important to talk about this and to, again, learn everything I need to know because it is like one of the first things you talk about in your lecture is that differentiation of peripheral and central vestibular disease, localization of the lesion. And I I wonder, are there clear differences on presentation and the symptoms we can guide us here? Or how are you going about that rule out? Overall, let's say about nine out of 10 cases, you get reasonably comfortable with, are you a peripheral problem causing the vestibular signs and 
so therefore you are an inner ear issue? Or are you a central problem, so something affecting the brain stem or cerebellum? So nine out of 10 times we'll be reasonably comfortable using some signs that come along with the vestibular signs. So for instance, if you have weakness or proprioceptive deficits, other cranial nerves involved, or a vertical nystagmus, those several signs, you are often a central problem. If you have no other cranial nerves involved, no proprioceptive deficits, no weakness, then you're often a peripheral thing. And with a peripheral disease, you can sometimes have facial paresis, you can sometimes have horners, but those are really the only other signs that we'll see. And you never have vertical nystagmus. And is this the same with cats? Pretty much the same, yeah. This is the one time where we can be reasonably comfortable that we can get to the bottom in cats and dogs of where the disease is. The difficulty always with cats is to try and find out where the disease is. You have to lay your hands on them, and sometimes they don't really like that. So to try and find out if you've got a proprioceptive deficit in a cat, you have to try to turn their digits over and hop them. And most cats say, yeah, not playing today. So that's a tough thing. The vertical nystagmus, we can pick that up in cats and so uh, can be done relatively hands-free, which is is nice. Most times, though, we have to do a bit of a hands-off assessment of gait, if that's possible, looking for weakness to say, is it central or not? And look to see are there any other cranial nerve abnormalities. When it's idiopathic, how does it present that can stand out? So idiopathic is a peripheral problem. So definitely no evidence of weakness, no evidence of proprioceptive deficits. It's a horizontal or rotary nystagmus. It comes on really quickly. So head tilt, nystagmus, and ataxia, usually all three signs very quickly. They can vomit as well, it comes on so quickly. And we don't see any other signs of a peripheral disorder with it. So no facial paralysis, no horners this time. Sudden onset. And if left to its own devices, it will get better in about three, four, five days. And what we'll talk about in the session is many owners aren't going to accept, go home, let's see what happens in three, four, five days. And so we will treat them for their symptoms or clinical signs that they have along with the vestibular problems, such as nausea and disorientation. So we may use Serenia, we may use any of their travel sickness drugs, so meclizine, prochlorperazine, things like that, which make them feel a little bit better. Their vomiting sometimes will add in metoclopramide. Something really which is not targeting the disease, just helping them feel better for the duration of the three, four, five days before we'll see if they get better. And that's one of the ways we'll use to diagnose a uh, idiopathic disease because it's a diagnosis of exclusion. So we could spend a lot of money and rule everything else out, but in cases where owners don't have money, we'll often want to wait those few days and see if it starts to get better. There's not much else that it could be if it's a peripheral disorder. When it is a peripheral, we don't see resolution as quickly as onset. The onset is can be immediate with, yeah. with an idiopathic condition. The resolution takes about those three, four, five days to get going, and that's the nystagmus that starts slowing down. And then in a couple of weeks to three weeks, the ataxia gets a bit better, and it can take up to three months or so for the head tilt to get better, and sometimes it's a permanent issue. It's, I've, I've noticed in cats, I find that that head tilt it seems to take longer, and that could be completely speculation. I yeah. just feel like those are the, my guys I see kind of keep it. Yeah, and the, this is where cats and dogs with vestibular 
severe disease do differ slightly. With idiopathic disease in dogs, we don't seem to see it back for some reason. It's a one-off. With cats, we do seem to see it come back on a repeated basis. And because idiopathic vestibular disease is a diagnosis of exclusion, as we said, we could be missing something. And people, there are at least three forms of idiopathic vestibular disease with potentially slightly different pathophysiologies. And so maybe this is just an umbrella term. Cats are getting something that in some cases is inflammatory, in some cases is immune mediated. We're not really sure. So potentially some cats will have a disorder that will never come back. Some cats have this disorder that keeps coming back, which is very frustrating because then they wonder if we know what we're doing. Well, and that's exactly right. And, and, that is, and that's the importance of this conversation because we also not only have to do great medicine, but we have to talk to our clients. We have to educate and prepare them. And one thing you do I wanted to talk about that I loved was the process of differential diagnosis with this beautiful mnemonic vitamin D. Yes, we use that. And I, I've often taught the students as vitamin D and they don't know what I'm saying. So I have to translate. And so then I say vitamin D and then they get it. Oh, you said uh, well, with a hard Southern accent. <laughs> Multi or multilingual. (laughs) And we use each one of those letters to help us remember a certain mechanism of disease that could be responsible. So V for vascular, so that's in the central area is a stroke. Uh, We don't get any vascular diseases affecting the peripheral area as as far as we know. I for inflammatory, so an infectious or immune-mediated problem. Peripherally, that's otitis media interna. Um, Centrally, more of an encephalitis, meningoencephalitis. T for trauma or toxicity. A for anomalous, that's kind of a hydrocephalus. Um, Centrally is probably the most common cause of that. Metabolic reasons, that's M. Idiopathic, that's that's the one we've just been talking about. And then N for neoplasia. So we use those both peripherally and centrally to help us out, say, okay, if I have a peripheral lesion, now what should I be thinking about? Go through it. And each one of those mechanisms of disease has a slightly different set of characteristics. So if you're inflammatory, classically, you'll come on over a few days and you keep getting worse and you'll probably be more one-sided, left untouched, you're going to be relentless. Tumor probably comes on a bit slower, again, one-sided, older, older animals. So those two can look a bit similar, but very different from toxins, very different from nutritional metabolic diseases, which are often symmetrical when they hit the central nervous system. I mean, I think that is a really, I just think it helps to build that confidence and clearly think systematically through this process and, and the differential diagnosis. You know, and I, and I know like in a perfect world, we want to do rule outs like we talked about, MRIs and CTs. And for clients who don't have those means, what what do you do to help? And we've talked through kind of the rule out, but like, how do you talk to your students about working through these with confidence and comfort without maybe these high level diagnostics that really give them that affirmation? I think that's a great question because so many people feel they can't do neurology without being able to do a spinal tap or an MRI and so feel like they can't even get started. And many times you can take it quite far without those tests. Those tests are just confidence builders sometimes and they're not magic. They're just a piece of the jigsaw. And so if there is a situation where we can't be doing those tests, it doesn't inhibit us too much when we look at vestibular disorders, when we also remember that we're looking to treat for the treatable. So for a peripheral problem, if you've used your examination to find out that you have a peripheral problem, some problem that's affecting the inner ear, nine times out of ten, that's an idiopathic disease or an inner ear infection. And so we tell the students, right, nine times out of ten, you now know what's going on. If it's idiopathic, 
that will get better on its own in a few days. So we could do the whole benign neglect approach where we're giving some of those more symptomatic treatments. Or it's an ear infection. Now, if it's an ear infection, it's an inner ear infection, so needs antibiotics for about eight weeks at least um, to get rid of the osteomyelitis that's there. We don't want to start those if we're not sure it's there. So we'll at least wait a few days for the idiopathic um, disease to get better if, if that's what it is. So we'll say nine times out of 10, this is what you're dealing with peripherally. And that helps them say, okay, now I can potentially get to the bottom of what's going on. Occasionally peripherally, it'd be other things like tumors or something that was put down the ear so it's toxic or a polyp. So there can be other peripheral problems, but they make up more of a one out of 10 conglomerate. Same for central. If you use your exam and you say, yeah, I think this dog or cat has a central vestibular problem, nine times out of 10, it's either inflammatory, so an infectious or immune-mediated problem, or it's a tumor. And if the owner comes in and says, I don't really have any money for fancy diagnostic tests, then treat for the treatable means you treat for inflammatory disease. So think about what infections could be there, what immune-mediated disease is there. You're always guessing, but that's the way we do all of our neurology. We're using parts of the exam, using a diagnostic test to try and put everything together and guess what's going on. We can't know definitively, we, we're always guessing. So it's just using some of the characteristics to feel, make us feel a bit more confident with that guess. Yeah, and I love that your students get the opportunity to hear that. Now, I guess in cases where we can track the lesion, what are our treatment options and goals, I guess? We know this is based on the cause, but when you have these nutritional or metabolic or toxic, how much in, in improvement in quality of life type things? Like I always worry about quality of life and we're talking about you know several days, several weeks, and kind of how do you navigate that and, and what is the goal? Yeah, well, the vestibular system is a great system um, when it becomes diseased because it has a component on the left and a component on the right. And so usually one side can pick up the slack and animals relearn how to balance using their eyes, using their feet, touching the floor so they can compensate for disease. And so if we can get on top of whatever's causing it, many of these animals will do really well and will then regain a good quality of life. We look at the compensation happening in a kind of rule of three fashion. So there's three signs, nystagmus, ataxia, head tilt. They get better over three days, three weeks, three months. And so we, we look for that, whatever the disease is, we talked about this with idiopathic, but if it's ear disease and inner ear infection, we sometimes gonna have to guess what antibiotic to use. We know we need bone penetration. We know we need to go for what's most common in the ear, but we need to see if it's gonna get better that they still follow that rule of three, because if your dog or cat is not getting better after let's say 14 days of antibiotics, that's too long to wait. The nystagmus should have got better by now. We use that course of improvement that would be expected if we're doing a good job to guide us. And again, we look at what's possible. Uh, in peripheral, it's idiopathic or ear disease, and we've got antibiotics for the ear disease. If we can find out what infection it is by ear swabs, by cult cultures of the middle ear with a myringotomy, then that's great, but often we don't have that luxury. More centrally, if we're looking at an inflammatory disease, we could do a CSF tap. That may help us get closer, but rarely definitive itself. So we're still guessing, and in that case, we would use antibiotics potentially to treat things that get in there, such as toxo, bacteria, rickettsia. If they don't get better, again, in that three days, three weeks, three months kind of course, we will then alter the treatment. So then we might then use more immunosuppressive treatment, but focusing on what's 
like most likely in the dog, what tests we're able to do, how we can put those together to try to ultimately guess what we have. So I guess when I think about this, like, you, you know, you're a veterinarian, I'm a technician, we're in the hospital, we're talking this through, we're talking about three weeks, three months. I mean, this all makes a lot of sense to me. But then I think it's like, we got to go in and we got to talk to the client and we got to make the client understand, like, I have to confidently tell you I don't know. <laughs> I There are a lot of things that could be and I have a great rule out process, but it's going to require X, Y, and Z. And I know you're in university now, but like back when you were in GP or, or dealing with this even in, in a specialty practice, how do you coach your students or how did you have those conversations with clients to help them feel confident in you and being comfortable looking at a client and saying, I know what it could be, what I know what I want to rule out. How do you confidently help them understand that this is not something I can just put my finger on, say this is what it is, this is how we fix it, and have them keep the faith in you and allow you to work these cases all the way through? I think you kind of just covered that a little bit there in saying that we don't know everything because we don't, even with the tests, if an owner said, I'm able to afford all of these tests and we did them, we're still trying to piecemeal the answers together. And so we're guessing. And so my approach with the owners and what I'll tell the students is we just have to be honest and we just have to tell them, this is what I know about your dog or cat. And this is what could be going on. This is the benefit of adding some tests and narrowing down the field of possibilities. And this is what happens if we treat for the treatable. So that they can almost visualize what we're thinking. They're on side with us. Some owners are not going to be happy with that. They want a definitive answer. And there's nothing we can do about that. And that's a degree of comfort I think you just get with time in in the job. It's never nice to hear that an owner says, well, I don't think you're helping me because that's our aim. But uh, if we can be honest with them and say, from examining your dog or cat, this is what I think. So it's peripheral or central. It's a balance center problem. And I think if they know that, they all of a sudden feel a little bit more comfortable at balance center. It's a bit like vertigo in people. And so we try to compare it to the human situation because then they get a grasp of what they're dealing with. Because obviously they're going to be very anxious and coming from the standpoint that my dog might die. His eyes are flicking. His head's tilted. He even looks possessed. So, I mean, I need some help right now. So they're going to be very anxious. And so we firstly sit them down and say, okay, here's what's going on. This is why your dog's looking like this. Now, what could cause it? It could be an ear problem. And then all of a sudden they could feel like, oh, that's better. That sounds better than my dog's brains seemingly getting affected by whatever disease on a rapid basis. And then we tell them, well, it could be an ear problem. These are the things that affect your ear. Or if it's a brain problem, that these are the things and we could potentially treat it. Vestibular disease is something because there's a center on each side that can get better. And so we give them a little bit of confidence, not false hope, but we just got to be honest with them. And then and even prior to doing the tests, if an owner said they want to do these tests, we'll be honest up front and say, this is what they could bring and this is what they won't bring. Because I think in this day and age and people know about MRI and they have the money to spend on it, we become a bit more demanding about wanting an answer, they feel that the MRI will give them a definitive answer and that's not always the case. And so they need to know that sometimes our hands are tied and so we're just going to do the best job for their animal and try and work as a team with them. Yeah, I mean, it's beautiful advice. It just take, takes time and confidence building yeah. in yourself and comfort. Yeah. So in, from a general practice standpoint, when should we be referring these guys out to specialty and to neuro? 
It's always a tricky question because I think a lot of this can be done in practice because finding out whether your dog or cat has a peripheral or central problem is a hands-on experience. Doing the test, looking for weakness, proprioception, deficits, vertical nystagmus. So that conglomerate of signs that says central is a hands-on experience. And then at that stage, you can separate it out. But if the owner says, no, I need a bit more definitive, you're telling me, for instance, nine out of 10 central diseases could be inflammatory or neoplastic or tumor. So that's good. If I stay with you, you're going to treat for the treatable and maybe that's what will happen in the future, but I need more definitive. And so if more definitive demands an MRI, for instance, or a CSF tap, and locally that's not possible, then that's when the step for referral would be made. And so I think with all neurological cases, they can all be managed by the owner's veterinarian up to a point that the owner says, all right, I need something more definitive and hope that something like MRI or CSF brings that to them. But we on the other side will tell them before you step into this arena of doing all of these tests, be aware that we may not be able to tell you much more than your own vet has told you. I love that too, because I love that you're telling GP out there, you can handle these narrow cases in clinic, because like you said, I think it feels intimidating without the big expensive diagnostics to gain that comfort level. So I love that you're out there giving our GPs that. If you're already reading Clinician's Brief, why not get credit for it? Get affordable, race-approved CE from Clinician's Brief content you trust without leaving your desk. You can track your earned hours, receipts, and certificates and see the latest available courses at cliniciansbrief.com backslash CE. Get started today. Now, my next question is in our keep it brief segment, and it's only because where I've put it, there's no pressure. We never actually keep it brief. So you just give me what you got. But what about when definitively we come down and it's not actually going to get better? Like we can't treat the treatable in this case. Maybe it's degenerative, for example, or, or there are limited treatment options. What are your most reliable and effective means for like the time being type improvements and for these patients' quality of life? Uh, yeah, it's a tough question. It uh, depends on how close to understanding what the cause is. So if you have a disease that's central, that's going to be the toughest for us to treat. That is the meat of the nervous system. And so you could have an inflammatory disease, which is either infectious or immune mediated, and they could be just impossible to treat. Even if you knew exactly what was going on, it could be impossible to treat. And then your other option in the nine out of 10 possibilities is a tumor. And the tumor in that region, even with all the technology available, is a tough thing to treat. And so we look at this from a couple of perspectives. One is, what are the clinical signs that the dog or cat's showing that we could help with that symptomatic approach again? And that is where we we step in with anti-nausea drugs, sometimes appetite stimulants, sometimes anti-emetics. So things which will make them feel a little bit better because although we're stealing the information from the human, human field and we maybe can't necessarily always translate that to dogs and cats. People with vertigo feel terrible. They feel like they want they want to vomit. They don't want to eat. And so we address those things. So that's the first thing. Let's make them feel as comfortable as we can. But then we look at saying, what could we throw at this patient? treatment-wise, which is almost a, a last-ditch attempt. If we've we've tried step-by-step step to get to the bottom of it, done the best we can, and we look at focusing on a, on a specific treatment, it's not working, then what else have we got? We've got nothing to lose. And so in those cases, we will do 
steroid, indiscriminate steroid therapy, for instance, and that's not a great approach for, and people are fearful of that, but many times when it's a central nervous system disease, the only drug that will work is an immune modulator, and steroids is, is an immune modulator, and that will take down inflammation. So for a period of time, even with very nasty diseases, we could help them out using anti-inflammatory steroids to begin with, and if they continue to worsen and we've got no option to get close to what the disease is, then maybe we'll step that dose up. Keep them comfortable, do the best you can, treat the symptoms. Yes. Yeah. And that's everything we need to know about vestibular right there? That is pretty much it. I'm always going to keep something back for the future. So it's a <laughs> teaser trailer for the future, but I don't know what that is right now. That so. means I'm having you back. <laughs> yes, that you have signed up for another podcast. What are your favorite resources? Where do you send folks that want more information or, are, hey, I love neuro? What do you like to send people to to learn more? Uh, that's also a tough question, which we get asked a lot, and, and I stumble on it sometimes, which is why we set up, this is going to be a shameless plug, we set up a free Facebook site, uh, which is called Veterinary Neurology, uh, or Neurology for Vets. Um, so Facebook Neurology for Vets. And you let vet techs join? Anyone can join. Anyone can like, follow us. We have some updates on diseases. We have little case challenges. We have papers that we put on there, some videos, um, some tips. Some of it is a little bit esoteric. Some of it is down and dirty practical. We just want to get information out there. And we're trying to expand that and, and look at adding some client sheets to that, for instance, like adding some podcasts like this to that so that we can get information out to general practitioners because it, it is tough to find a resource. When you look in textbooks, if we were to advise those, it's difficult to thumb through and find some practical in, information. So we tried to tease that out and put that in the form of, of this website. Well, I know there's a lot of people out there grateful that you're doing that. You're reaching them, getting this information. I appreciate so much that you're doing it. Thanks for taking your time out of today here in New York to sit down and have this conversation with us and all of our listeners. And like I said, it sounds like you sound up for another podcast so we'll have you back soon Yo, thanks for the invite and certainly did so I can't wait to come back love it thanks Thanks again to today's guest for joining us, and thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. We appreciate if you leave us all the stars. You can listen to podcasts as well on our website at cliniciansbrief.com backslash podcasts. You can find us at facebook.com backslash cliniciansbrief, on Twitter at cliniciansbrief, and on Instagram at clinicians.brief. You can also drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. Clinician's Brief, the podcast, is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ustry, sound by Randall Stupka, hosted by me, Becky Mosser, with special thanks to production assistant Michelle Moncrez.